So the object of our webinar today is uh, human rights remediation across the supply chain. Um, and we're going to start off with a few instructions as to the logistics of this particular webinar. Um, and um, you'll, you'll see that we have a few run-of-the-mill instructions for you. Um, obviously, change your name in order for people to understand uh, who you are, and particularly for us to be able to maybe address some of your questions uh, using the chat function um, so that we can moderate your questions and, and feed them into our discussion. Uh, all of you are muted. Um, obviously, use the chat function um, so that the main presenter may invite you to speak or share a question. Your camera is likewise off. Uh, we're trying to uh, keep the bandwidth uh, to a bare minimum and minimize our carbon footprint in, in the process. Um, you are obviously welcome to invite other participants. We're obviously encouraging you to share um, all this content through social media uh, and you can include us uh, at xapa.org uh, so that we may track the discussions and see any insights that will come out of it. Um, you'll be able to scan through the participant list through the LinkedIn um, profile that you probably joined. And uh, towards the end of our uh, webinar, um, say maybe the last five minutes, you'll, um, you'll be invited to answer a poll. Uh, please let us know what you think, and any insights, any advice. Uh, we're all ears. So my name is Margot Dillon, um, and I'm, uh, I'm in charge of uh, um, presenting SAPA to you. Uh, and so um, my role there is a sustainability consultant. Um, and so I, um, uh, you'll, you'll see that we have a few activities that I, I partake, uh, which is why I'm uh, helping uh, Furry today. Um, so we want to introduce you to XAPA and uh, namely our team, uh, as well as our, the services that we provide. Um, so XAPA is what we like to call a, a, a mission native uh, company or .org uh, led by purpose. Our purpose is to accelerate uh, our, the contribution of investors and companies to the 2030 uh, sustainable goals. Uh, in order to do that, um, we have decided to structure uh, our, our activities around three key pillars. Uh, which you have uh, on this particular slide, uh, the first being advisory, the second investment, and the third advocacy. Um, and so you'll, you'll see that a, a number of our activities are obviously interconnected. And right now we're in the process of sharing the advocate pillar. Uh, so uh, we'll be um, uh, sharing more insights through well, our webinar right now, but also uh, quite, about, quite a lot of media, social media, obviously uh, join in, share insights, and, uh, and help us move forward. So I, I, we want to stress the fact that we're mission native. We're headquartered in Paris. Um, there are 10 uh, experts uh, for now, um, but we also um, have a, a much broader network uh, spanning the five continents, um, about 100 the experts um, may be pulled in in order to support us uh, in the 
um, operational implementation of our programs um, or with uh, expert insights on particular topics um, such as agronomy. Um, uh, here we're, we'll likely be talking about uh, specific issues pertaining to human rights, so we might be pulling in people from around the world in order to support us. Uh, we also um, move forward through a number of uh, global strategic partnerships uh, with impact investors and uh, digital experts, uh, as well as uh, more and more data, um, as you yourself uh, might have encountered. The goal being through those three circles of those three interconnected teams uh, to offer super contextual uh, insight and follow through on, on, on the ground. Uh, make sure that the, the support is effectively operational and high quality uh, in global and very complex projects. So one of our, our key pillars um, is advocacy. Uh, we very much would like to welcome you to uh, check out our website. Um, there's a whole uh, advocacy section and, and namely the publication segment of our website uh, where you will find our Towards 2030 report uh, complemented by um, um, briefing papers uh, on specific topics. Uh, here we have a sample of two, two of those uh, focusing on human rights. You'll also want to check out our, our blog uh, well, you'll find a number of articles on human rights and, and risk mitigation in general, and a number of regular, regular webinars, uh, such as the one you're following right now, um, that you can uh, get back to um, at any particular convenient time for you. So right now, uh, it is a good time to delve into the specifics of uh, today's webinar. Um, again, it's a series of webinar, but this time we would like to um, delve into the, the particular uh, particulars of, of risk mediation, remediation. Um, so, and it's, it's particularly topical right now, seeing as uh, um, 26 global players just banded in order to, to call the regulators to, to essentially level the playing field by mainstreaming uh, due diligence uh, in a way that is mandatory and cross-cutting. So, so uh, in, yeah, the European Commission is slating a, a new uh, directive for 2021, um, and uh, they've uh, highlighted a, a, essentially a, a in very uh, intricate uh, alignment with the UN guiding principles and the four steps that was promoted back then, but adding two very essential components that is have been gaps, major gaps in, in uh, business implementation of them, uh, namely enforcement mechanisms and civil liability provisions, uh, which is the goal of this present webinar and for, for us to delve into. Uh, right now, we, we hope to delve into uh, the enforcement mechanism aspect of that conversation. Uh, what we see are three thorough lines. Uh, first being that for now, 
uh, we, the, our engagement with clients has shown a certain amount of, of difficulty in effectively mapping risks uh, across the business throughout the value chain. Uh, the second being that um, corporate reporting right now seems to be fairly disconnected from uh, um, risk mapping at the granular level of wherever risk occurs. Um, and when, whenever risk is finally uh, identified, uh, there is um, certain uh, lagging in terms of answering, uh, addressing, and, and following up on stakeholder aspirations. And now is maybe a time for Farah to introduce Furry, who's going to take it um, from, from my hands and, um, and introduce a very, uh, uh, our, our panelists today, um, Salil. Uh, and so over to you, Farid. Thank you very much, Margot. I'm delighted to uh, take part in this conversation as well. My name is Farid. I'm also working for xapa.org and um, just moving on and just uh, connecting some of the, the elements here. Uh, as what's displayed on the screen right now um, is related to some recent conversations and previous uh, webinars and conversation held with many of you and other people and part of that community uh, taking part in some initiatives held by xapa.org. On human rights in June, we held a webinar uh, addressing particularly this question of uh, EU, European Union uh, mandating um, uh, uh, due diligence on, on human rights and environment. And um, there's a lot of, uh, of uncertainties uh, that are yet to be explored. If you want to know more, you can, of course, uh, 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 download uh, the, that webinar on our website in the publication section, and there are a couple of blogs that have been produced out of that as well. Just wanted to um, uh, bring this uh, to life with um, maybe a few examples that out of um, this question of meaningful enforcement mechanism, I think there is something that is very similar to some conversations held about climate a few years ago, where a growing number of, of stakeholders have been increasingly asking uh, for leveling playing field addressing human rights, the same as uh, what I was about climate. So I was actively active involved in COP15 in uh, 2009, and that, that was a moment when basically business investors and many stakeholders were just not aligned and not ready to call for leveling playing field on climate. And at COP21, um, uh, five, six years later, um, a lot of things had changed. And a lot of those uh, very same stakeholders were saying, you know, at the end of the day, climate is a problem for everyone, no matter where, you, where you're standing across supply chain or across the value chain. So we need um, more clarity on what needs to be enforced with what direction. And I think now the, the moment is, and it's time to meet the moment uh, on something very similar about human rights, and that's actually why as part of that series on, on discussions on human rights, and notably in the context of um, COVID-19, which we believe generates or accelerates risks um, of human rights but from a broad perspective, it's even more important to consider that uh, uh, due diligence on human rights and uh, connected uh, effect that might be brought uh, from an environmental perspective are extremely important. So this is just one example, and I want to introduce here um, also um, Salil Tripathi, who can uh, introduce himself first, and also share his perspective. And we thought we would start that conversation with two um, uh, very uh, simple questions. To which extent is EU 
um, initiative connects with broader um, uh, 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 global discussions, um, um, legally binding instrument to regulate human rights. They've been on and on conversations for years, one. And two, maybe we can learn from some recent controversies uh, related to COVID-19, which might even um, uh, add, bring even more urgency on the need uh, for more uh, new solution on your approaches, managing human rights from supply chain perspective. A lot has been done today by companies and investors, but clearly, I think it's not uh, a surprise for anyone here to say that it's clearly not enough. Salim, maybe you can first introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, um, uh, good day. Uh, you know, the, one of the wonderful things about these Zoom meetings is that you never know uh, which time zone people are listening in from. So good day is a safe way to start. I am the senior advisor for global issues at the Institute for Human Rights and Business, which was founded in the UK, but we are spread. We have some work in Colombia. We have some work in um, in um, Middle East, in, in Qatar in particular. We also work out of Myanmar. We have office in Singapore. We have colleagues in, in uh, other parts of Europe. I'm based in the United States in New York. Uh, for a long time, I was in London, but last year I moved here. Uh, and we look at um, basically try to understand what companies are doing with regard to business and human rights. We try to advocate for policy changes and shaping good practices. We don't do the, the classic uh, you know, report which identifies bad practices and leave it for um, prosecution and civil society to take, to take over from that. Those are very, very important uh, uh, functions. I used to work with Amnesty International where we did some of that. Um, we feel that there are companies which are not good or bad, but companies' actions are often good or bad. And our aim is to make sure that the good actions are promoted and bad actions are stopped, not just minimized or mitigated, but stopped altogether. And we do think that the UN guiding principles for business and human rights gives a very good framing point to, for companies to recognize what their responsibilities are and how they should work together. And in that, one of the critical things that they need to bear in mind is, of course, due diligence. Now, it is in that regard that the first question you know, about the legal binding, legally binding instrument comes into being. Um, I see the whole guiding principles and the due diligence requirement as a kind of a licensing requirement for driving. You know, if you're driving on a highway, uh, you need the highway code, which tells you um, how to drive. It tells you the rules, when to stop, what is the speed limit, uh, what risks are not worth taking ever, uh, what, how do you operate when there is a sudden um, crisis in front of you. Uh, it tells the rules, but ultimately the responsibility lies with the driver. Uh, yes, there are times when you know the driver is pushed from behind and something happens and there is an accident. Um, but basically, a, a highway code can tell you the rules, but does not prevent accidents. And I think that's what guiding principles and the requirements on due diligence do. They are necessary, but they are never sufficient because sufficiency is a very challenging part in human rights. There's nothing that can give you a fail-safe rule that if you do X, Y will not happen. And one reason, of course, is that human rights... Uh, are impacted on and affected by a wide range of uh, entities. Uh, it's what society and culture dictates. It's what the local laws are about. It's about what about host government laws are, home government laws are. It's what about how they're practiced in specific contexts. And it also deals a lot with the state responsibility to protect human rights, which is a starting point of the UN guiding principles that you know, the states have the uh, obligation to protect rights 
companies have the responsibility to respect rights and respect does not mean the traditional human rights law perspective, which is do no harm, but doing a lot more, which comes through due diligence, having a policy, operationalizing, instrumentalizing it, having systems of incentives built in, having a reporting mechanism and establishing a grievance mechanism. I mean, I'm assuming most of you are familiar with that framework, so I won't go too much into the detail of that. Now, a lot of the discussion on business and human rights inevitably tends to take the perspective of large multinational corporations for good reason, because multinationals claim to adhere to international standards and they have an impact way beyond their own operation. But even multinationals can have limited impacts. I mean, a good example would be, let's say, someone who does contract manufacturing in China, and let's leave COVID aside for a minute, and let's not talk about how supply chains are going to get disrupted, but let's talk about before January 2019, 2020, uh, last year. Uh, and you would have large, suppose IT companies, you know, whether it is um, Apple, whether it is um, other manufacturers of uh, IT equipment, all relying on one large uh, contracts manufacturer in China. And you might, we might think that Apple and others have great leverage, but that leverage may be diminished or reduced because it's here the manufacturer who has the advantage and not the client in this case. And therefore, when we say that a company is large, that's not good enough about in terms of figuring out whether it will have the leverage that we are talking about. And sometimes very small companies have incredible leverage. So there are, uh, there's a company in Europe, for example, which buys a lot of ships that are being discarded, right? I mean, ships that have to be retired and they inevitably go about 90 to 95% of them go to Bangladesh, India and Pakistan for them to be broken up later. And uh, there's one or two companies like that, which buy the ships in, in its last voyage, you know, just when they enter the Bay of Bengal and Indian Ocean and they buy it for the last few minutes and then the ship goes to, so, I mean, a large shipping company may, you know, have, uh, you know, a particular, uh, relationship with that entity, uh, but uh, then it is no longer in their hands. And the, actually the company which has the largest impact on human rights would be the smaller company, which is actually operating there. So the size is not an issue. Ownership is not an issue. And where you are is not from an issue. So transnational cooperation, other business enterprises becomes a very important part here. That it's not simply we are talking about large multinationals, but also small ones. If you're talking about elimination of child labor, yes, of course, companies have a responsibility, big multinationals have a responsibility. But the small farm, the small cafe, small restaurant, small uh, 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 auto mechanic shops around the world, in the developing world, where we often see um, child labor being exploited. So it is a never ending game. And I mean, having a good binding instrument here would be a good thing. But if the aim is, it depends on what the aim is. If the aim is to restrain large companies from doing bad things, yes, the current conversation is going in a direction which can lead us there. But if the aim is to eliminate human rights abuses in the sphere of business and human rights, then it may not be sufficient either. And so it depends on what kind of binding instrument it is. What is it that people are going to be bound to? Is it only about reporting or is it actually about prosecution? And there, there are a huge number of problems just from the international law perspective, because who bears the responsibility for a specific act is something lawyers will never be able to agree on. Judges will also have a problem. Um, if there is an oil company in the Niger Delta and the security forces behave badly, and if the security forces are controlled by the Nigerian state, uh, to what extent is it the responsibility of the multinational, which is only a 5% owner of the, of the concession, 
What if it's 48%? If it's 52% is the Nigerian National Petroleum Company? And these are real life examples. Many of you might even know these, some of these stories that I'm talking about. And, and therefore, it's, a, it's, a, it's at a very early stage of setting it up. We should also bear in mind that if you look at uh, other conventions on relatively straightforward issues on which there can be no dispute, such as torture, you know, I mean, um, who would want to defend torture, for example, very few people except the torturers themselves. But if we look at the history of the torture convention, the convention that again, it took decades to for before it to be agreed to, uh, even the International Crimes uh, Tribunal, the Rome Statute, took a long period from the time it was first talked about as a, as a Rome Statute and the treaty to its final adoption. And even there, many large countries that matter have not signed up or or you know, passed it into the local legislation. So creating international law is a long drawn out process. Going there is not going to be simple and companies that are likely to face uh, an issue may not have um, an immediate thing to worry about, but there's of course the reputational damage. There's of course the insurances and most important of all, the international crimes tribunal that we do have, the international uh, crimes uh, the, and the Hague and so on they can go after specific companies and specific entities and they can actually prosecute companies when the violations we are talking about are truly gross violations such as aiding and abetting genocide crimes against humanity and war crime what's called who's cohens in international law i mean this is a very um arcane part of international very in a way a no-brainer because we're talking about you know, uh, mass displacement and, and, and so on. But uh, companies will be surprised how often they are only one or two steps removed from that. So greater understanding of complicity becomes important, which is a very long way of saying that yes, legally binding instruments are necessary to regulate, but there needs to be clarity about what it is that we wish to regulate and what kind of reporting mechanisms we want, what kind of grievance systems are in place and what kind of, uh, um, what kind of uh, remedies that we are really after. Um, uh, do you want me, Farid, to turn to the COVID-19 now, or do we pause? I just have one question coming from a participant um, yes. asking, at the end of the day, what would be um, the perspective of, um, I mean, perspective that could be shared in this webinar, if I get it right, from um, uh, the trend. Is it more going down the road of reporting, or are is there convergence to expect companies to go more down the road of enforcement uh, with um, that can be attached to, you know, legally enforcement of human rights yeah. by companies? So I think the, uh, they're kind of tied together. I think there is a lot of conversation about reporting. There is more and more demand of reporting, you know, modern slavery statement and the anti-bribery convention and the disclosures under the Dodd-Frank Act. There's a lot of stock market reporting requirements that are coming in. Of course, when we talk about stock market reporting requirements, we should bear in mind that we are talking about companies that are listed on stock markets. I mean, you increasingly companies are taking private capital or you know going directly for replacements and those companies will not be covered by this. Let's be aware again that you know this is not one size fits all solution that's happening. But I think reporting there's a greater convergence of interest because it's easier for companies to understand that they have to report. It's a time consuming effort, it costs money, but at least they know what they are meant to report. Too often what's reported is what's easy to measure. And that's a problem that I find. I mean it's a personal view here that uh, it's easier to measure processes, but not outcomes. Uh, yeah, so, and it's very hard to identify specific outcomes with a particular measure taken. So, for example, right. you may have a very good system in place, you know, for reporting on sexual harassment policies, but 
are sexual harassment incidents coming down? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Is it because uh, the policies are working? Or is it because in spite of the policies, there is a climate of intimidation and fear against whistleblowers, so nobody dares to make a complaint? And, and which would be seen through attrition levels. You know, more women are leaving the company, for example, and not coming back. I mean, those are the kind of, so I think numbers tell partial story and to go deeper would be, would be a more interesting idea. In terms of enforcement, I think uh, you are finding some cases, you are litigation by um, certain um, uh, law firms, I mean, both in the US and in France have been taking up these cases in UK too, Lee and Day, Sherpa in France and ILRF and other NGOs in the US are taking up specific cases for getting specific enforcement. But uh, real enforcement is going to come with, with, with cases such as the one that ISIS and Syria, that's a very famous case in France that came up where a cement company was, uh, you know, being targeted and, and fa facing prosecution. I'm followed through the case in great detail, but the meticulous case that was being built, then there is another case involving a Swedish oil company um, uh, in Sudan, and this is a war. 10 years ago, but it, with the Swedish prosecutors are looking at. So yes, there is certain examples that egregious grave abuses are taking place. Yes, you do have enforcement as a very real uh, risk. Excellent. Um, just um, another comment that we can share here. The problem with reporting is actually also that we aggregate information, whereas yeah. at the end of the day, aggregation is counterproductive to really address human red read that might Okay, in um, you know specific areas. So the disaggregation is important in a way to, to go straight to the point and really address issues where they okay. No, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's a bit like broader arguments on economic inequality today, right? That if you look at um, SDGs, if you look at, I mean, again, this let's talk about pre-COVID because the economy is in complete shambles now. But if before the COVID crisis occurred, uh, you could argue that you know. Uh, the world was well on track to reduce global poverty by half. And the reason it was saying it is because a lot of people in China and India were lifted out of poverty. But is that good news for someone in Burkina Faso? Or is that good news for somebody in the Niger Delta? The answer is no. And then that's because of the aggregation, because China and India being such large economies and a lot of people being lifted out of poverty creates the illusion that we are winning the war against global poverty, which we are not. So you're absolutely right that uh, it's the granularity and you know peeling the layers of onion as i always keep saying that will tell us tell us more about what's going on all right let's move on uh to make sure we cover the full agenda maybe with one um uh, focus that you might share from your perspective also on um, to which extent you think uh the current covid19 crisis and related economic crisis um, amplify um specific aspects of um the human rights agenda Oh, yes. I mean, COVID we have is, a few yeah, examples that we might just display to kind of support the, the discussion here and make that lively. No, no, it is, it is excellent. I'm so glad you've done it. I mean, you found all the good examples here. I mean, um, COVID has sharpened our understanding and focused us towards the exposure of the inequities and inequalities that exist. It's really, really... Um, a human rights crisis, and it has also enabled, like it happened with 9-11, I mean, uh, what it has done, essentially, is that it has enabled a lot of governments to put in place laws for greater surveillance and greater control of people's life. I mean, it's very hard for people to go out and protest because, you know, social distancing, right? And therefore, it becomes much easier for governments to pass laws uh, that restrict civil liberties, for example. Uh, the inequities, I mean, I mean, I'm glad you pointed out the 
it's not just uh, the, the case of Britain where you have more black uh, African, Caribbean and Asian that's happening. But even in the US, we have seen that. that uh, and it is also because of economic inequality. And there are some people say it has to do with diet and pre-morbidities and so on. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, a disease expert at all. But uh, it is also linked to another part that if you look at it in many countries, I mean, I know US well now because I'm here, but I also know Britain well. I lived there 20 years. In both those countries, there's a lot of anger with the lockdowns and people want to start going back to work. And uh, it's very easy. And, and typically, the people who say that are those who are desperate for work because of income or those who are in the middle class who basically work in offices and with sufficient social distance. And the people who are reluctant to go out are actually often people of color, to, for want of a better word, because um, it's the delivery folks, it's the nurses, it's the doctors, it's the front end staff at supermarket. And those are often from migrant communities, those are often from ethnic minorities. And they are sometimes reluctant to go back to work because they are more exposed to the virus and they are more exposed to ill health. And in countries like the US, of course, you don't have um, uh, universal health care. So all of that uh, accentuates those health inequalities. I mean, the workers facing the race to bottom standards of labor standards in India is one thing. India wanted to attract more investment and India is not unique in this. Many countries will want to do two things. One is to disrupt the supply chain, which is so reliant on China by bringing investments back home so that you know more jobs are created at home. But in order to attract those investments at home, uh, it would lead to lowering of labor standard. And the excuse to be given is that we are in a crisis situation and therefore we must take any investment that comes our way. And um, I mean, and, and there is that kind of race to bottom is, is going to manifest itself. And at least it's happened in a couple of states in India, certainly, but elsewhere also people are, people's rights to form unions and, and, and resist are going away. Um, child labor risks will increase. I mean, I mean, just imagine if you're from a poor family, you don't have access to tablets and laptops and computers and schools are all going on Zoom. How do students, children access it? And if they are at home and there are, mouths to feed. What does a poor parent do? He sends his children to work in the farm, in the, in the coffee shop next door and all that. That is going to happen. Social unrest is indeed rising, as you're quite right in pointing out here. I mean, it's uh, the Black Lives Matter movement here. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that what's happening in Belarus today is necessarily because of COVID, but obviously frustrations have been built up and uh, long drawn out rivalries are being fought out. And, and that's certainly the case. And the one, uh, I mean, a impact we also have to look at is the impact on women and on gender. There are two kinds of impact. Those who are, uh, on one hand, it might seem great that you know women can work from home and therefore there's greater flexibility. Something many women have asked for many, many, many years and they were not able to get by saying no, you have to be physically present. And now they are able to go to, uh, I mean, you know, work from home. So that's supposed to be a good thing, right? No, if there are not enough facilities at home. The, quiet, private corner, women need to work, the number of screens needed, suppose a family is, is a family of five, three children and, 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 and the couple um, who were the head of the household, the, the, the man and woman or the two men or the two in this case. Now, what would happen in that kind of a situation is that the competition for screen time, competition for data that is needed, and in some instances, exposure to greater violence, you know, in a small cooped up environment, and um, I mean, we wrote a report in, um, in April, soon after the lockdown started, highlighting some of these potential risks, and it has only gotten worse. We know a lot more cases like that. 
But beyond that, I mean, even industries which are primarily reliant on women and workers, you know, in a huge way, such as what we were going to talk about, Bangladesh and garment sector is a very good example. Bangladesh relies hugely on garments for its uh, foreign exchange. It's the biggest foreign exchange earner after remittances in the country. And about 4 million Bangladeshis work in, uh, out of, uh, out of uh, uh, in the garment sector. And out of them, about 80 to 85% of them are women. Probably 90% of them are women. But once the COVID happened, and although we pay $5 or 5 euros for a t-shirt, I mean, you know, and it's possible because of extremely low wages in countries such as Bangladesh, uh, in this garment factory. But once this happened, um, a lot of the com companies, knowing that there'll be a shortfall in demand, stopped those contracts and canceled them. And because they canceled them, a lot of women were exposed to unemployment and no, with no other jobs to go to. And you could argue that those are terrible jobs to have because the conditions are not great and all that. And at the same time, there is, if you look at the work of a sociologist from Bangladesh called Naila Kabir, who teaches at the London School of Economics called The Power to Choose. I mean, she basically writes how actually the garment industry has empowered women by letting them get out of home and, and in a workplace, in a safe, secure setting compared to, you know, working in more dangerous industries such as brick making, for example. And all of that has led to an empowerment of women. Now, so this is the kind of thing that is always the um, uh, strategic incremental gain, which is not perfect, but it is good compared to what it was. So this is what was happening. And now suddenly a lot of these women have either lost work or because some of the companies are insisting on the contracts being made, some of these women are being forced to go to work and expose themselves to COVID. So if they don't work, they have a risk. If they do work, there is a risk. And, uh, you know, I mean, all these positive stories came out, how the Bangladesh industry started making personal protective equipment and so on, which is all for the good. I mean, that, that's nice. But we are in a situation where we have to look very carefully about what the impact is. Some companies have to be commended. I mean, you know, G-Star being one of them, H&M Group of Sweden being another one, which decided that, you know what, this is a terrible time and we are going to honor the contracts we have signed. And that's a good thing. I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's a luxury in a way because not every company can afford to do that. And, you know, there comes a time when the company may have to actually backtrack because, you know, it can't be a permanent long-drawn um, commitment that is uh, being put up because companies clearly have... Um, uh, liquidity issues. I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, I mean, it, uh, yes, however much uh, stimulus, stimuli may come from treasuries, ultimately the companies have to be responsible to at least maintain their books of, uh, books of account. You know, let's leave aside whether they're responsible to the stakeholders or shareholders, those are philosophical issues. But they have to make sure that they earn a dollar more than what they're spending. And, and that's hard in this environment where demand has collapsed. I mean, st statistics of um, uh, economic decline have been huge. Just two days ago, the statistics came out from India. The uh, official figures say that the economy shrunk by a quarter, 24%, the world's steepest decline. Um, and that's only the official one. Unofficial one is probably much higher. One statistic said it's one third. You're talking about 33%. So it's going to be a very long haul before we get out of it. We need to think of uh, newer ways of approaching the issue and newer ways of addressing and, and, and moving from that. And Bangladesh is just one solid example of that. And I mean, as I can see from the slide here, um, it's not restricted to Bangladesh. You have issues of uh, exploitation of workforce even happening in the developed world. Yeah, this example, I mean, makes a good connection for um, the next 
um, section that we have today. I think overall we can look at some of the good practices coming out of COVID-19, but I think it's actually also important that given the context uh, which you, uh, you described, uh, uh, encouraging very strongly companies and investors to look at the human rights agenda very seriously and to expect more um, regulations to converge and to force companies one way or another to be as proactive as possible on, on the human on human rights risk. If we look at the example of Bangladesh, and you know, I was involved in a lot of, of work and activities taking place just after Rana Plaza 10 years ago. At the end of the day, you can really question uh, two things. One is if you're pro a professional buyer, at the end of the day, from a large corporation, part of your responsibility is really to understand where and how uh, your orders are executed. So you don't just leave things uh, happening in Bangladesh without uh, a clue on what's going on. So you must know, and normally you know, which connects to a second thing, which basically is that normally when you're a big brand, you have a supplier code of conduct. You have uh, ethical commitment. You have a couple of principles which have been laid out and in many cases uh, that have been signed by many of your suppliers that have been screened, selected, um, to be expected to abide by those principles. And in practice, in general terms, clearly there are human rights issues which are not necessarily fully addressed through social audit and through the fact that the commitment that are made, one, and two, as soon as there is an additional crisis uh, putting even more pressure, and for example, pressure on liquidity, well, then the um, implications from a human rights perspective are even more um, uh, uh, disastrous. Um, so there is something uh, here which I think is important to flag because that's exactly a reason why we've, we've established this initiative, CLAPA.org, among many things. But one thing that is important to us is to step back and look at some of those practices and look at what can be done learning from what's been done to date, but differently to contribute to accelerate fundamentally uh, the way uh, societies, corporations and, and investors particularly, because that's the community working with us, um, to uphold basically human rights. So just take two minutes and then uh, we'll have a second round of discussion and just uh, taking um, uh, a comment from, um, from, from someone. Thank you so much because there are three comments coming. Um, uh, that are basically supporting what I'm saying. So thank you, and I'll, there are a few more questions, and I'll, I'll keep uh, sharing questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to address them. Um, basically, the slides that are displayed here, they will be uploaded on the website starting uh, tomorrow at the latest, so um, if you want to have more, because someone, uh, someone is asking, everyone has access to the slide, and it's open source, of course. Um, but one thing is uh, that there is a limitation coming with um, some of the traditional approaches uh, held by companies um, addressing supply chain risk. Uh, it's displayed on the screen, but long story short, without uh, putting aside the qualities and the improvements that have been provided across the past, let's say, two or three decades, two decades uh, through social audit, streamlining and strengthening rela uh, supply relations, ensuring that there is a better alignment on human rights expectations, for example, on labor conditions, child labor, safety uh, issues, fine, that's fine. However, uh, what we can clearly see uh, and that's really experience that is uh, talking here, um, that's not enough. And typically uh, we can see that um, it's not because government companies in Bangladesh are signing principles or even can be trained to some principles that you can really apply those first. 
Second, it's clear that if you just take an issue like overtime or child labor in supply chain, and let's not forget that uh, the ILO uh, declared that 2021 was expected to be the year when child labor would be banned uh, from the world supply chain. We'll see if that happened next year in context of COVID-19. Um, uh, but if you, if, you, if you explore those issues, at the end of the day, they've been recurring um, for decades. And so continuous improvement in a context where a growing regulation is expected to happen is not, uh, is not uh, the right answer. You cannot just get back to uh, an attorney and just say, you know, we are uh, exploring uh, continuous improvement and sorry, we have mis there are things we don't manage. So there are just three things, um, three solutions that are pretty aligned with our agenda that we just wanted to bring to the community here as part of the concrete solutions to move forward and accelerate capacity for investors and companies to address the human rights agenda. Um, now getting in a decade of turbulence, but at the moment when it's clearly expected from companies and um, investors to be much more, have more ambition and more capacity to proactively demonstrate their capacity in good faith, not to be perfect, but to do the best they can to manage the issue. So just three issues, three, three ideas which are food for thought for discussion. Idea number one is basically to start from the broad uh, uh, human rights perspective and dig deeper on uh, vulnerable segments to really understand how best to address e what might be the root causes generating human rights, potential human rights abuses. The um, SDGs, the Global Goals, just to start from something that is pretty simple, can provide a simple framework to explore human rights from the lens of specific issues. Gender can be one. The concept of decent wage can be another one. If you're in the supply chain and people are paid by the piece, for example, in agriculture, people are paid by the volume. Um, the capacity for people to get a decent wage um, is not necessarily predictable. So that's just an example. A second area uh, that we believe is important is if we consider that countries or particular sourcing activities, which are extremely strategic for companies, beyond uh, what's been done today, um, more systemic approach that might go through coalitions with other companies, a very active engagement with investors, for example, can be a way, or is a way, I mean, we're we are, we are on that, uh, to um, ensure that programs can be deployed at the scale that is needed in countries. Typically what we do at SAPAD Authority is to federate some impact investors, providing the resources which generally we don't have from a human rights uh, program perspective to amplify significantly the scale and the reach of, let's say, for example, training programs, enabling workers in supply chain to access understanding of their rights, better practices, and mitigate, for example, safety uh, issues and others um, that are really um, some operating issues that they can face, um, for example, in the apparel industry. And the third aspect, which we believe is interesting now for the, the decade that is coming, is to explore what, what is brought with um, new technologies. Um, and of course, I say this with a lot of caveat because I'm perfectly aware, we're perfectly aware in our community of a lot of the um, uh, issues that can brought with big data, civil surveillance, data privacy, all those issues. But uh, I mean, put that and factor that into the way we can advance understanding of human rights and exploring solutions from a human rights perspective, we believe still that there is an interesting potential. Just like, as an example, um, to be concrete, addressing the issue of child labor. Um, I've worked myself a lot with migrant workers in Southeast Asia. There is one thing that I know, basically there is a correlation between where 
migrant workers are living and to which extent the places where they're living, which generally are places where local population are not interested in having the activities because it's far away from cities, for example, from kind of even villages or small urban areas. So the migrant workers took basically they can take the, 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 the positions which are not of interest for local population. It's far from schools typically, um, but people need to be living there with their communities. So the families are living there. And so the likelihood to find child labor in those areas is, is, is higher uh, than in the population in general. So talking about big data, something that is very interesting to explore with my example here is to put um, a GPS location, for example, of plantations or factories where we know that some migrant workers are operating, put that in the same map as where we can find some local equipment that provide access to education, schools or um, cities of um, a certain size, let's say. And with this, you can clearly just play a little bit with the data and have high likelihood to identify the areas where there is high likelihood to find some child labor. And then how to address the child labor issue? Well, there are thousands of, 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 of tactics and solutions that might address those issues, but at least the attention is focused on the right pocket um, where um, the, the, the child labor issue is likely to occur. So long story short, because we're entering a decade of turbulence, um, being able to focus and explore the human rights agenda from the late gender being a very interesting one, uh, being able to provide the federate that relationship or coalition between investors exploring impact, for example, and companies exploring solution at the scale that is needed in country and or exploring the pros and managing the cause generated by digital solutions are three ideas, uh, solutions that we're exploring and implementing ourselves to help advance a little bit more the agenda. So I stop here. There are questions. Um, so I just want to make sure that one question is addressed, at least. Regarding large companies, do we think um, that investors can exert uh, pressure, as much pressure as low? Um, I think that's an interesting question and I will just like make a connection there and then uh, let uh, Salil react to or build on some of these uh, suggestions, uh, suggested points. Um, Investors, I mean, uh, just uh, because there's this question coming in, um, I think a challenge we have today from a human perspective is um, the insufficient alignment of expectations between investors and corporations, simply because investors and in, 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 in corporations generally are first not, not using the same reporting tools or frameworks or even taxonomy. Um, so that's clearly a challenge here. However, if investors, as they are increasingly subject by law, uh, to demonstrate their proactive capacity to map and proactively manage human red risk, at least increasingly um, that's coming in 2021 in the European Union with um, uh, the, you know, the mandatory uh, due diligence. Uh, clearly, it is part of the role of investors to engage um, with, with, um, with corporations and to uh, uh, ask corporations how they're mitigating risks. Um, it's clearly part of what they, what's expected from them. Anyway, I stop here uh, for you, Salil, to also react to some of those areas which has been shared to our community today. Yeah, sure. So um, I think uh, the SDGs is a good starting point. The, the, the beauty of the SDGs is that they are measurable, they are understandable, um, and in a way, the entry barrier for companies is low. Uh, I mean it in a, in a nice sense of the term, um, because you know, 
they are meant to encourage companies to act in ways that advance a good policy good, such as empowerment of women, or working towards environment. And a lot of companies tend to see SDG realization as part of their corporate social responsibility initiative. Now, uh, where, I, where I have a slightly, not skewed, but slightly different focus or perspective, is that corporate social responsibility is all very well, but it's always tends to be voluntary. I mean, it's when companies have, it's good year that they will do it. Every time they will not do it. It's the kind of thing that they would want to do it because it's in part of the code of ethics. It's not regulated, it's not mandated and so on. And SDGs are really goals for the entire society. For the state, first of all, I mean, let's be, let's go back to the basic. Human rights protection is the responsibility um, primary obligation rests with the state, not, I mean, the others have a duty to help, but it's not something that's a legally binding responsibility. So when companies say that, you know, we are doing things that enable with the realization of SDGs, that's fine. What we should always remember is that, you know, doing, uh, it's not like environment where, you know, if, if a company has had emissions problem, it plants more trees to offset for that. Human rights doesn't work that way. That if there has been exploitation of women or children in one particular factory, it cannot be compensated for by doing good work elsewhere, you know, in, in, in some other area altogether. It doesn't even have to be gender specific. So I think SDG is a good starting point, but the whole idea about who the rights holders are and what their expectations are have to be addressed first. And very often, SDGs formulation tends to be done by large NGOs with the government and so on. And the voices of the communities on the ground about what their expectations are are sometimes missed out on that. So that's one thing I would like to point out. Private priority. Fully agreed. I'm sorry. By the way, no, fully agreed. Just fully yeah. agreed. And um, yeah, we, thanks. just for information, we released, I think recently, a few months ago, a, a briefing paper and a blog on uh, SDG washing, by the way. So just for yeah. information. No, that's a very good right. point. I mean, prioritizing action based on strategic categories is a no-brainer. I entirely agree. I've spent a lot of time in SDGs because I don't have much to say. I would have had a lot to say on the big data, but you did anticipate what I would have said, Fareed. You know, when you mentioned the surveillance risk and privacy risk, those are the biggest risks. I think a very simple, I know we are, we are coming to the close of the hour, so a very simple rule I would have is this, that, you know, big data and and all that is all very well when we are talking about commodities and when we are talking about tracing of commodities and objects, it's a wonderful thing, you know, conflict diamond, conflict minerals and so on. As soon as we apply it to people, a lot of risks come in. And there are sometimes tracing individuals is necessary, such as who is a carrier of a particular disease, yes. But as soon as it is done about who is likely to form a trade union, who is LGBT, um, that becomes hugely problematic from a human rights perspective. So it has to be who has the access to data, how often, how it is shared, how it is managed, all those things become extremely important. What's your take on those worker voice applications? It's, it's a question coming here my way as well. You know, those applications and, you know, I'm a worker in a garment factory in Bangladesh and through the application I can, you know, share, you know, um, uh, share an issue, uh, a problem and, it, there is a kind of third party which is uh, processing the, um, uh, the, the grievance, basically. What's your take on that or your experience on how that might work? I, or, uh, I know I haven't looked at it. I've heard this talked about by several people, you know, who are very keen and they think it can work. And I think it works in societies where data privacy is guaranteed. Because, you know, I mean, if somebody can 
then inform the manager where the complaint came from. You know, if it's a routine suggestion, it's fine. You know, that extend the, the, the lunch hour by another half an hour. I mean, that that's nobody's going to lose a job over that. But if it's sexual harassment complaint or if it's a complaint about bullying or it's about anything that's slightly graver of a human rights abuse, uh, two things can happen. One is that there can be retaliation against the person. And the other is, of course, that uh, um, it can be misused or it can be... Uh, O overlooked completely by the authorities uh, so as to not look look bad in the in the eyes of the auditors when they come in and more pressure applied without even without retaliatory action against them so yes uh, these uh, apps can work but it, it requires a norm-based functioning civil society uh, without that it becomes very hard excellent um just exploring some um aspects of um, maybe SDGs. I, I, I think you've worked a lot on gender, so I'd be curious to understand what uh, exploring gender um, has been different or a good way to kind of refresh, understanding that you could have exploring right holders, um, you know, having worked on right holders first and then exploring or maybe having a, a deeper dive on uh, through the gender lens, uh, how that this has been helpful to kind of you know, gain in, in quality, I would say, of, of understanding and of a solution. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as soon as we talk about gender, then the other intersectionalities come in, right? I mean, ethnicity being another one, language minority being another one, LGBT communities being another one. So I think what companies will have to increasingly look at is the intersectionality approach. For example, you know, many companies say that, you know, if we have um, increased the number of uh, senior management uh, by one third, so that right now we have 10% of our senior managers are women. If we make it 25, that's great. Now at one level, that's wonderful. And I, I will never say that that's a bad idea. In fact, it should be 50 uh, is what I would immediately say. But the question of intersectionality is about, you know, which is the class of women who are benefiting from it? Are they from the elite community? Are they, uh, you know, you talk about France, are they, you know, graduate from Sorbonne? If they're from Oxford and Cambridge in Britain, if they're from the Ivy League colleges only, or are efforts being made to improve situations and uh, by uh, seeking out from elsewhere. The other gender element, which also complicates things, is you know yes, it's all very well to have a woman CEO, but what is the condition for the woman at the front line of the operation? The bank teller, if you're a bank, you know, and if the uh, you might have a woman CEO, but if women at the front end are working, you know abnormal hours or if there is they are facing sexual harassment uh, those are the kind that's that's the kind of peel again i go back to the metaphor of peeling the layer of the onion we have to keep doing that constantly to find out exactly what we are looking for and then also look at the most vulnerable the, the, the biggest vulnerabilities and not look at the i mean easy i mean i'm not i'm not at all saying that gender gender balance is an easy target to achieve but it's recognizable, it's, it's manageable, it's something that the world is already aware of. But we are still beginning to learn how it might play out when you're talking about, let's say, the discrimination in the Dalits in India or the Burakumin in Japan. Uh, and, and that's going to be much harder. Uh, and I think we, and that's why, you know, it's, it's an ongoing, never ending uh, quest that we are on. Yeah. Yep. Uh, for, People taking part in the webinar today, you might have seen that the poll of three questions has been um, brought to your attention. Uh, please just respond. It's helpful for us to improve um, the quality of those uh, webinars and make sure that they're useful to you all. Um, so that's just one thing. And just 
moving on as we getting to the far end of our uh, uh, webinar today, uh, these are just a brief overview of some of the activities uh, that we're leading. We've not really talked too much about uh, duty of vigilance plans as uh, they're increasingly are um, becoming um, generic or um, a go-to tool, um, at least for companies uh, being under uh, regulations across um, uh, a growing number of uh, uh, countries in uh, continental Europe, uh, starting from somewhere. Um, and just uh, getting to the far end, I want to make sure that uh, people are aware of some of our upcoming webinars. There have been a couple of questions related to this webinar. So it's part of our advocacy program. Uh, the session is recorded and uploaded as much of the presentation on the website in our publication section um, that should be um, uploaded very soon in uh, within 24 hours from the date of the webinar. Um, so if you want to have access to the PowerPoint, the question was asked, that will happen. Um, uh, as we continue to explore uh, those uh, areas of um, uh, uh, human rights, climate and circularity, I did not mention that, but across the next, the upcoming month, there will be um, additional webinars. They are always taking place on a Tuesday at um, 11 a.m. New York time, 4 p.m. London time, 5 p.m. Paris time. Um, one will happen on stakeholder engagement, um, uh, managing uh, digital era, and another one uh, in December, um, and you can actually already uh, mark up agendas, will be on the value chains and climate action. And connecting with what we've been discussed today, uh, we're actually also a strong believer that there are important connecting points between environmental and, and human rights issues and exploring the climate agenda is a good way to advance understanding of the uh, human rights agenda and solutions. Moving to the closing of this webinar, just want to give you the floor, Salil, to ask you one closing question. Um, anything that you found uh, interesting, maybe coming through them, a few questions coming from our uh, audience today or something that uh, uh, you will want to chew in or to chew on uh, for the next uh, couple of hours out of this webinar? I think the big, uh, I mean, there, we have three existential challenges, right? One is, uh, and this is, uh, this comes out of the conversation we are having. One is that COVID has truly transformed the way uh, the world is. I mean, it's not just the international order, but even the human rights order. And I think it's going to require truly out-of-the-box solutions. And what I would want to know from participants and, and, and others to think about as we go forward is what, what are the best incremental steps that can be taken, um, uh, not necessarily to address one issue, but to when you consider that specific issue, to think of the human rights impact of that and then see how we can move on from that to uh, would be, you know, uh, I mean, it's very easy to say that, you know, we want to diversify the supply chain and move away from um, uh, traditional sources because it's it's better for uh, uh, to ensure liquidity and so on. And the question I would have is that in so doing, who are the vulnerable workers who are going to suffer? And this also applies to the climate, which is the third part, the whole just transition agenda, you know, that is very, it's, it's, it's good to move away from coal and, 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 you know, fossil fuels, but a lot of people's jobs are reliant on that and what happens to them. And I think these are existential challenges, which, I mean, obviously we can't respond in the next minute that we have, and probably not even in the next year or two, but these are the kind of questions uh, we have to start unpacking as we go forward. 
build kind of inclusive solutions moving forward. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much um, for your contribution. Uh, for, I would say I would, should thank every participant also for their active contribution, for many. Um, feel free to continue uh, interacting together through the LinkedIn um, space that is provided. You've registered mostly through that uh, LinkedIn space um, so you can connect with each other. And um, we need to close the webinar. This is a one-hour format. Um, and thank you very much. The webinar now is closed. We remain, of course, ready if you have any, any question at contact at SAPA.org. Thank you so much, Sabine, for your time. Thank you so much. All the best to everybody. Yeah. Have a good day. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.